We're getting closer. We got the sunshine at least. So um, everybody, make sure you get one of these before the night is over. This is one of our schedules, schedule for the rest of the year for the well. And so this will tell you exactly when we're going to be here, exactly what passage we're going to be studying. It's also going to tell you the days we're not going to be here so you don't show up and, you know, it's just not a well day. So Father's Day, Mother's Day, Memorial Day weekend, those things, we're going to take uh, Sunday afternoons off. So you'll want to hang on to that if you don't have one yet. So we're going to be back in Leviticus tonight, Leviticus 6. So we're kind of fast forwarding. As you guys know, we've done a series on the five offerings on Sunday mornings. So um, you're not going to hear that tonight. We're kind of fast forwarding in the places we've already been on Sunday mornings. We're in Leviticus 6 tonight. And you've heard us say that the offerings are a picture of Jesus, but they're also a picture of us. And so tonight we're going to talk about how God gives us the offerings a second time around and all that means in our lives. So I'm excited to see you. And then uh, we'll do a little Q&A when this is over. This one's a little bit longer. Believe it or not, I try to keep these things to about 40 minutes. This one got away from me. It's 50 minutes. Just want to prepare you, okay? If you got to get up and um, if nature calls in the middle of it, we all understand, okay? It's, but otherwise, um, we'll come back and do a little Q&A. Lord Jesus, thank you for a chance to gather again and study this amazing book. Lord, your amazing word. We ask the Spirit of God would help us tonight, guide us, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to our exciting study of the book of Leviticus. I'm telling you, one of my favorite books. I know people think I'm crazy when I tell them Leviticus is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And well, honestly, uh, whatever book I'm teaching is my favorite book at the time. But honestly, this is an amazing book because we're seeing amazing pictures embedded here by God with every word. It's as though God is another stroke of a paintbrush, painting a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and many of the New Testament doctrines that we hold dear. Uh, the reality is we're God's children. God's revealed himself as our father. Well, we know that children's books always have a lot of pictures in them because children learn by pictures. And that's what the book of Leviticus is. Like all of the Old Testament, it is a picture book because God is teaching through word pictures so much of what we hold dear and know to be true as Christians. Specifically, first and foremost, as we've learned recently, through the five offerings of the ancient Hebrews, each of these five offerings representing a different component or aspect 
of what Jesus did on the cross. Remember, we studied the burnt offering. The burnt offering represented the death of Christ, that he was fully poured out for us. He held nothing back from us. He was fully consumed, consecrated, burnt in the fire of God's wrath. And right after the burnt offering came the meal offering or the grain offering. Now, the meal offering, unlike any other offering, was a bloodless offering. It was the only offering where no blood was shed. And the reason why is obvious. Because while the burnt offering represented the death of Christ, the meal offering represented the life of Christ. Uh, it was a grain offering of unleavened flour. Leaven in the Bible, of course, being a picture of sin. And so they would offer this unleavened flour as a meal offering as Jesus was that unleavened bread. He said in John 6, remember, I am the bread of life. On the night before he died, he was passing out the Passover and they were celebrating the Passover supper. What did he do? As he passed out that unleavened bread, it took on whole new meaning because he had just said, I'm the bread of life. And of course, he is that unleavened bread of the meal offering, speaking of his sinless, unleavened life. Had he sinned even one time, he never could have become our burnt offering. He never could have been our meal offering. But because he was a sinless offering, he could fully pay the penalty for our sin and thereby become the peace offering. The peace offering, of course, was the third because after Jesus died for our sin and he could die for our sin because he never ever sinned, he was the burnt offering, the meal offering. He made peace with God for all men and all women. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the order itself is divinely orchestrated that we have peace with God only because we have the meal offering of Jesus, then we have the burnt offering of Jesus, and because he's the burnt offering and the meal offering, he could become our peace offering. And of course, we studied then the sin offering. The sin offering, unlike the first three offering, was a mandatory offering. It was a non-sweet savor offering. The first three offerings, they were voluntary offerings of a worshiper fully redeemed by God, voluntarily worshiping God because of what God had done for them. It was a sweet aroma offering is what they were called, sweet savor offerings, the first three. And that priest would often burn them with incense or frankincense, causing the tabernacle to be filled with a sweet aroma because it was said to be a sweet fragrance in the nose of God because they represented redemption. They represented reconciliation the washing away of sin. But the next two offerings, the sin offering, the trespass offering, they were mandated. They weren't voluntary. What that meant was the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Somebody had to die for your sin. Yes, Jesus went voluntarily as the burnt offering, but it was mandatory somebody was going to. If it wasn't him, it would have been you. And that made it a non-sweet savor offering. These were said to be a stench in the nose of God. Because instead of representing reconciliation and redemption, they represented the ugliness of sin, the destruction of sin, the wages of sin, which is death, Romans 6, 23. The sin offering representing, of course, that Jesus paid for our sinful actions, the specific sins we've committed. Uh, the trespass offering, I should say, the specific trespasses where the sin offering represented that he's overcome not just the specific sins and trespasses, but rather the reason we sin. Not just sin's penalty, but sin's power 
that works within. Now, what is amazing to me, and you just see God's providence and God's fingerprints all over this book, is God is about to give those same five offerings again. But the amazing thing is he's going to do it in a way that is just slightly different. Now, God's not being redundant. He's teaching us and he's doing it differently specifically for a reason because he's teaching us that what Jesus became for us, we now ought to become for him. He's teaching us that in the same way those five offerings embody and picture Jesus and what he did for us, they ought to in some way embody us and what we ought to do for him. So when we see this done again in Leviticus 6 and 7, God changes the order of these offerings slightly. You know why? Because the first time he gives them, he's teaching us how to have peace with God. But the second time he gives them, he's teaching us how to have the peace of God. How many Christians have peace with God, but they don't have the peace of God? I know a lot of Christians. And the sad truth is most lack the peace of God, even when they have peace with God. And so the first five offerings is how God made peace with man. We might say the second time he gives them a little bit differently, this is how we make peace with him so that we have the peace of God and not just have peace with God. So just very quickly, let me give you the order. It's slightly different. It's going to change. Instead of the peace offering being third, God moves it now to the fifth position. So here's the point. When we become the burnt offering, we sell out, we give our life completely to Jesus Christ. It naturally leads to us becoming the meal offering. We become increasingly holy like him. Not that we become sinless, but we begin to sin less and less and less because we first surrendered wholly to him, withholding nothing from him. That's the burnt offering. Our life naturally becomes more like the meal offering, unleavened, with less and less sin and less and less leaven. And then he gives the next offering, which is the sin offering. You know why? Because the sin offering represents the power of sin in our life. Because we're first the burnt offering, we've sold out, surrendered completely, withholding nothing from him. Our life is naturally becoming the meal offering. We're living more and more like him, which means we're now becoming the sin offering. We're overcoming our sin and our trespasses, which is the fourth in line. We're trespassing against him less and less because we're overcoming sin's power in our life more and more now. After you become those four offerings, guess what? This time, the very end, he gives us the peace offering. You know why? Because now you don't just have peace with God. You now have the peace of God, having been the burnt offering, the meal offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. You now can begin to embody the peace offering and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will begin to completely permeate your life. Isn't that exciting? Now, God gives us these offerings twice in the book of Leviticus. The order slightly changed. I just told you why. The first time God is teaching us what Jesus became for us, the second time he's teaching what we ought to now become for him. Let's go ahead and go through this again uh, and begin tonight by talking about the burnt offering. The first of the five offerings is still the burnt offering. Look at uh, verse 8. Chapter 6, as we get rolling, it says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, upon the altar, all night until morning. 
and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on the linen garments and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Now, we've already looked at a lot of these elements as we studied the burnt offering the first time through. So I'm not going to belabor a lot of the detail here, but I want you to see the big picture. In some way, this doesn't just represent Jesus, it represents you. As a New Testament priest, remember, we are the priest, but we're also the sacrifice. And what we're talking about here is becoming a Romans 12.1 kind of Christian. Unfortunately, there's far too few Romans 12.1 kinds of Christians. Remember what Paul said, I beseech you, or I beg you, I strongly urge you, is what he's saying, uh, to uh, be uh, by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your reasonable act of worship. And that's what's called being a burnt offering. I'm convinced that is what is in view as the Apostle Paul wrote those words in Romans 12 and verse 1. He's thinking of this paradox that would most certainly have grabbed the attention of his first century readers. When they heard the word sacrifice, they were thinking of something dead, not something alive. But Paul is teaching just like that offering was brought to the priest, it was alive and it wasn't long before that offering would be slain and it would be dead, fully consumed in the fire upon that altar. Our life is to be fully given away to him. We should hold nothing from him. Fully surrender. That, you see, is the burnt offering that God desires. The burnt offering, you see, represents consecration. Totally laying down your life for Christ. Surrendering it completely. Now, I want you to see in what Jesus said in Mark 8, how you have a picture of the burnt offering as well as the meal offering all in one thing that he said. Remember Mark 8, he said, he that will seek to save his life will lose it. Whatever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. In losing your life, there's the burnt offering. But then in saving your life, there's the meal offering. You see, here's the point. Only once you have laid your life down, can you take it back up again? Only once you have fully died will you ever in Christ be fully alive. And uh, so many of us never quite get there, always bargaining with God, always holding out a little bit in this series, this series. I think of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, as a missionary to Ecuador, he might have understood this perhaps as good, maybe better than maybe anybody since the Apostle Paul. So Jim Elliott, some of you know the story, some of you might not. January 1956, he was martyred deep in the jungles of Ecuador by the Aka Indians, who were known to be a very hostile, very warlike tribe. They were known to murder anyone that would encroach on their territory from the outside. He and four other American missionaries were determined to take the gospel to the Akas. In January 1956, Jim Elliott and four others were massacred on the banks of a river deep 
in the Amazon by this primitive tribe. Here was American men that had modern weapons of warfare. They, they had sidearms. They had firearms. They refused to use them. They were martyred by wooden spears. And uh, here's a man that fully consecrated himself to Jesus, fully gave up his life in every way, literally. And uh, he wrote in his journal in 1948, while still in Bible college, listen to what he said about consecration, uh, being a burnt offering. He said, God, I pray you'll light up these idle sticks of my life and may I burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours. Lord Jesus. It almost seems as though Jim Elliott maybe had a premonition even that he would die an early death and maybe a violent death. He would write later in that year in Bible college, Father, take my life, even my blood, if you will, and consume it with your enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Pour out my life as an oblation for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altars. Here's a guy, Jim Elliott, that fully understood what it meant to be a burnt offering, a living sacrifice. Uh, Here's a guy that literally, in the truest sense, laid down his life. Now listen, chances are good that you're not going to have to do that and I'm not going to have to do that. Maybe, but in the place and time in which we live, chances are really good. You're not going to have to literally die for Christ. Can I tell you what it means to die for Christ, practically what it means to die for Him is to live for Him. And that is why following the burnt offering is the meal offering. You can't live for Jesus until you're willing to die for Jesus. And until in some way you've laid down your life, you can't fully live your life. You see, you will never, ever be all God wants you to be until you've laid yourself down as a burnt offering. So what part of your life are you holding on to? What part of your life are you still bargaining God for? What part of your life maybe have you failed to sell out completely and surrender wholly and totally? Now look at verse 9. The fire was to never go out. Look at what it says here now in verse 9. It says, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Uh, The fire on the altar in the tabernacle, it was to burn day and night, 365, 24-7. It was to never, ever, ever go out. This is what happened. Remember in the days of Samuel when Eli was the high priest, they let the fire go out. Uh, They took uh, trivially what God meant for them to take seriously. And literally, don't let the fire go out. And all of a sudden, they were trivializing what God had said. They let the fire go out in the tabernacle in the days of Eli. Happened on Eli's watch. And guess what happens? That that complacency and that apathy would lead to complete apostasy and anarchy. And this is what happens as priests of God. Remember, we're the priest and we're the place. We're the tabernacle of God and we are priests of God and we're to offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. When we allow the fire to go out in our life, what does that mean? It means all of a sudden you quit caring about the things of God. But when you quit caring about the things of God, apathy... It will lead then to apostasy. Not only are you not caring about the things of God, but you begin rejecting the things of God. And that's what happened in the days of Eli. It moved from apathy to apostasy to anarchy, 
which then becomes idolatry. And guys, this is what we see happening in our lives many times in our churches where we allow the fire of God to go out. We don't take seriously what he says. And all of a sudden, we don't care about the things of God like we once did. And when we quit caring about the things of God, it's not long before we start turning from the things of God. Listen, we need to keep the fire going in our life. I see no scriptural precedence one, one, anywhere in scripture that the fire should ever go out. This is what I'm talking about. I don't see any scriptural precedence for burnout. Well, I'm just burned out. I don't know how many times I've heard that as a pastor. I'm burned out. You know why you're burned out? You let the fire go out. I don't see any scriptural precedence for that. I, I realize there are times to maybe withdraw, maybe make a, a calculated retreat. Jesus would do that in his own life and ministry, uh, but it was never permanent. And here's the reality. The, the reality is the church, as I've said many times, is meant to be a launching pad. It's become somewhat of a lounging pad. Hey, we're all weary. We're all tired. Uh, but uh, there's no rest this side of heaven. There's, there's a work to do. And the priests were constantly be working in the tabernacle. And they would uh, literally have shifts uh, so that there was always somebody attending to the fire. The fire was to never go out. And I love what I heard one older saint say recently, 80 years of age and still serving the Lord, uh, full bore. All right. I'm not going to retire. I just refire. Okay. So I don't know where you find yourself in life or ministry, uh, but uh, we should never retire. We just take time to refire. Uh, let the fire rekindle again. Now watch this. When the fire is kept burning, the result uh, is that the priest would put on linen trousers. Oh, watch the progression here. God is absolutely amazing in the pictures he's painting. Look at verse 10. It says, And the priest shall put on his linen garments and his linen tra trousers, and he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them uh, beside the altar. Now, I want you to see this amazing picture of what God is painting right here. When you don't let the fire go out in your life, you eventually will put on these linen trousers. There's, there's this natural thing that happens. The fire doesn't go out. You never let the fire burn out. And this ever-burning fire results in this priest putting on linen garments. Linen in Scripture is a picture of, guess what? It's a picture of righteousness. Leviticus 6.18, and the priest shall put on his linen garment. Remember, you and I are priests of God. First uh, Peter 2 and verse 5, we are New Testament priests offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. These priests in the book of Leviticus are a picture of you and I. We serve a high priest pictured by Aaron in the book of Leviticus. Our high priest isn't Aaron. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we keep the fire burning in our life, listen, would you covenant with me, would you help me keep the fire burning in our church? Because the way you keep the fire burning in a body of Christ is you keep the fire burning in your life. And together we keep blowing on each other's fire. That's why the Hebrews writer would say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, but, but assemble together, provoking each other to good works. Basically, we come together in community as a body, whether corporately, maybe on a Sunday or in small group gatherings offsite. Why? In essence, we're just blowing on each other's fire. We're just here to fan each other's flame. You cannot keep the fire going solo. 
I've camped enough to know, all right? I like a fire. I like to burn fire in the wintertime. Uh, I've got a wood stove, and I can heat my whole house with it. I like a wood fire, whether I'm uh, trying to stay warm in the wintertime or maybe a campfire in the springtime. But I, I know this, when a little coal may be burning bright, and it may be red hot, but listen, when it gets separated from the other embers, it won't take long. It's growing cold. You know why? Because it doesn't have the warmth of the other embers to keep it blowing. Listen, I know you've got a good bed of coals and you go to bed and all of a sudden you wake up. Guess what? There's still coals that are burning. You know why? Because they've kept each other glowing. That's the nature of the body of Christ. Let's covenant to never let the fire go out in our life or or in this body and bright at abundant life. Because what we see here is the bride of Christ will one day be adorned in this same linen that these priests are now wearing. We know from Revelation 19 and verse 8, and, and it is to her that was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You've heard me say many times, I'll say it many times more, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. What's being pictured here by these linen clothing of these priests is righteousness. And when you keep the fire burning bright, I'm going to tell you something. Your life is going to become bright white. And uh, this, uh, this, this bride now, this priestly bride is now adorned in bright white linen. And that's a picture of you and I. When you're completely consecrated, that burnt offering, you naturally will become that unleavened meal offering, that grain offering, increasingly sinning less and less. Not that this side of heaven you're going to be sinless, but you will sin less. Listen, when we offer ourselves completely, eventually what we have is turned to ashes. And when that happened, that was a sign that God had accepted the offering. When that burnt offering was fully consumed, God had fully accepted it. And that's what's going on here in the book of Leviticus, and I'm convinced that's what's going on later at the judgment seat of Christ. Leviticus 6 and verse 10, take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed. The problem with most Christians, quite frankly, is we're working with wet wood. Uh, we're, we're not keeping the fire going because, quite frankly, our lives are too wet with the, the world. Uh, and so much of the time, what we hope maybe is to come to church and let Pastor Phil or somebody else pour a little kerosene on us. And, you know, we get excited for the moment. And, yeah, it's the pep rally for Jesus. And it doesn't last till Monday morning. You know why? Because you can't live the Christian life that way. Uh, you will never keep the fire burning that way. Uh, what you need is a slow burning fire that's going to be burning the course of your life and not just one emotional experience after another uh, and uh, pep rally for Jesus, which so much of the time is uh, all that we have. Now, something else, I want you to look at this in verse 10, because so many Christians can't kick the bad habits. They can't kick the besetting sin, this, this, this pattern of consistent inconsistency, right? Can't keep the fire burning. We blow up for Jesus and then all of a sudden it's, it's over again and just just a little smoke left. Here's, here's what I want you to see. This amazing picture is about to emerge here in verse 10. It says these words. Uh, it says, And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers, and he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, 
which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Do you realize there is a day coming when you have offered yourself up completely to God, your offering will be totally consumed by God, completely consumed and become ash. Uh, what does it say? Psalm 20 and verse 3, May he remember all your offering and accept your burnt sacrifice. Here's why so many people live so inconsistently. You just can't quite turn the corner permanently, spiritually speaking. It's because you're still withholding parts of yourself. You've never fully given away yourself to become that burnt offering before God. Surrendered wholly and totally, completely. And I want you to see in the end that this is all a picture in some capacity of what will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. Here's this priest. He's taken the burnt offering. It's been completely consumed in the fire. It has been reduced to ash. He's now put on this fine white linen representing the righteousness of the saints, the purity, the holiness. And in some way, that is a picture of what happens one day at the judgment seat of Christ. God will use the judgment seat of Christ and the fire therein to reduce to ashes anything that you have held back from him. Now, I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians 3.13, one of the definitive passages of the judgment seat of Christ is 1 Corinthians 3. It says, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And do you realize what happens at the judgment seat of Christ? All the works of your life will be passed through the fire. It will be refined in the fire. It will be reduced to ashes in the fire. Of course, you read the whole passage, the eternal works, the righteous works is like gold, silver, precious stones. It's refined in the fire, but all the sin in our life, the carnality in our life, the compromise in our life, the trivial pursuits we had in life, it is likened to wood, wood, hay, and stubble. And what happens in the fire? Wood, hay, and stubble instantly consumed. It's not refined in it. It is destroyed by it. You know what we're learning here as priests of God? We are to let God burn it off now as opposed to letting God burn it off later. Offer everything to God today. Here, the key to life, the key to the Christian life is to burn it now, not later. Let God do it here, not now, not, not there. Uh, let him do it here, not in heaven. Every part of my life should be offered to God. God, take my sin. Lord, take my, my compromise. Take every part of me that is worldly and fleshly. I surrender it wholly. And let God put you through the fire as a burnt offering, refining you, sanctifying you, separating you. And I will promise there's going to come a day at the judgment seat of Christ that when you are passed through the fire, it's going to be gold and silver and precious stones. It's going to be refined in the fire as opposed to just re reduced to complete ash. And it says in 1 Corinthians 3 that some on that day will suffer loss. Loss of what? Not loss of heaven, but rather loss of reward. And that's what God wants to do is reward you for how you lived on earth. How faithful were you? Now, what is the key then to keeping the fire burning? Here it is, verse 12. Here's the key to keeping the fire burning in your life so that the fire never goes out. 
of the altar of your life. Look at verse 12. It says this word. It says this. It says, And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the, look at what it says, the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This is how they kept the fire burning. Yes, they'd lay new wood on it, but guess what else they would burn on it? They would burn the fat from the peace offering. The fat would feed the fire. Now, I, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I enjoy grilling, okay? I grill out a lot. I grill out even in the wintertime. And uh, there's something I've noticed when you grill, at least when I grill. Uh, all of a sudden, you start hearing these sounds start to pop from inside the grill. Up. Right? And then you open the grill up and it's flaming up. You know why? Because the fat from what you're grilling is hitting the fire. I grill hamburgers, all of a sudden, man, <laughs> got to turn down the fire. You know why? Because the fat's feeding the fire. It's not just the gas anymore. Uh, uh, I, I, like, uh, I like steak of any kind. A lot of you know that. I'm a kind of a red meat kind of eater. But uh, I like a Kansas City strip steak. I like a T-bone steak. But my favorite is the ribeye. You know why? Because it's the marbling, the marble, which is just a... Uh, Maybe a more dignified way of saying the fat. The fat is what makes that ribeye good. Now, I know a lot of you don't like it. That's fine. Each to their own. Eat your chicken breast. I'm just saying I like what I like, and I happen to know why I like it. It's the fat. Now, listen, when I grill a ribeye, there's a lot of fat that feeds the fire. And that's what we're saying here in life. This is what God is saying. Listen, it's the richness of life, the fat symbolized in the ancient world, especially Less so in our world, but the fat represents the richness of life, the very best that you have, withholding nothing. Do you realize in the ancient world, in ancient cultures, uh, someone with some extra body weight, let's say, was considered not only wealthy, but healthy. Uh, if you look at some of the ancient artwork, what we consider today the perfect body image, that is not what ancient cultures considered the perfect body image. Go to, say, Greece somewhere or Rome, and you'll see some of their statuary. They had naked bodies everywhere, okay? Unfortunately, not that much has changed. But what is interesting is what they considered the perfect female model or the perfect male model, uh, in many cases, is not what we consider the perfect fitness model. Uh, they, they, they considered some with some extra curves, let's say. That was the picture of health. That was the picture of wealth. And in some way, this is what God is communicating today. It's the richness of life. It's the fat of life. God, God wants everything. He, he doesn't want us to hold back anything. And when the fat hits the fire, meaning the very best you've got, uh, all of your wealth the riches of what you have, your opportunity, your ability, your energy, your money, when you're giving it all away and withholding nothing in return, I'm going to tell you something, the fat hits the fire and the fire begins to light up in your life. You know why some of us, listen, have no real peace in our life because we're still holding back the fat, the very best that we have to offer. Uh, the Pro Proverbs writer Solomon put it this way. 
He said, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. See, we, we want to give God our seconds. We want to give God our thirds, what we have left over of our energy, uh, of our money, of our time, of our ability. You know why? Because there's this mentality, well, if I give it all to God, there won't be enough left for me. Yeah, that's exactly the opposite of uh, that mentality. You see, the reality is that God will always give some back. He always gives some for us. Remember Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Listen, God made provision in the Levitical law for the priest to eat a portion of these sacrifices. And God makes a provision for you too. And when the fat hits the fire, I'll promise there's going to be a flame. And when you are on fire for Jesus, I will promise you, uh, you're going to be a contagious Christian and we're going to have a contagious church. Now, that's the goal of the Christian life. It's not to live, it's to die. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. When you have fully died, then you can be fully alive. And there's the meal offering. And that's why the meal offering comes next. Right after the burn offering, our life naturally becomes the meal offering. And that's what he does next in this order of Leviticus 6. The burnt offering has to do with dying while the meal offering has to do with living. But remember, you can't fully live for him until you have fully died for him. The offering here represents the works of your life, the fruit of your labor, the sweat of your brow. What are you working for? What are you sweating for? What are you living for? You see here now the meal offering in verse 14. Let's read it together. This is the law of the grain offering, or what I'm calling the meal offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil, and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering, and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it Aaron and his son shall eat. With unleavened bread it shall be eaten in a holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them... Uh, must be holy. Now, again, we've studied the meal offering, so I don't want to belabor every component here, but I want you to see the basic symbolism that's going on here, pictured here by the grain offering. Um, they have grown as a, as a child of God. Uh, the people of Israel have grown in their understanding now of God. And here's the mistake that I think a whole lot of people make. They believe that God will accept their works uh, unfortunately, God cannot accept their works until they've accepted Christ's work. See, there's a reason the meal offering doesn't come first. God cannot accept your life until you have accepted Christ's death. And so you see the order very specifically. And unfortunately, so many, even under the canopy of what we call Christianity, try to approach God according to their works, their own righteousness or the things they have done. And here's the reality. You will never be accepted by God based on what you have done for God. You will only be accepted by God based on what the Son of God has done for you. 
And so here's what happens, though. The reason the meal offering comes next is because Jesus first offered himself as the burnt offering. And once you've received Jesus as the burnt offering, his sacrifice, only then can you become a meal offering uh, as your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your life. And the reason the meal offering follows the burnt offering should be obvious by now. When you first receive Jesus as the burnt offering, only then can you understand that you have anything to offer God as a meal offering. You come to God based on one thing, the blood of the Son of God, the burnt offering of Jesus on the cross of Calvary poured out for you. But now listen, make no mistake about it. God still wants your works. He won't take your works till you have first come through Christ's work. But once you've come through Christ's work, you better believe God cares about your works. He wants the meal offering of your life. James put it this way in James 2.20, Do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He's not trying to say that you get saved by your works. What he is trying to say is that if you are truly saved, it will be evidenced by your works. You see, a transformed life is what is evidence of one that has truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that you're going to be sinless. But if you aren't progressively sinning less and less and less over the course of years, you should begin to wonder, have I really come to Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.20, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I think it's actually 2 Corinthians 5.17, not 2 Corinthians 5.20. But the point is obvious. If you become a new creation inwardly, it will eventually change how you live outwardly. And if you haven't changed in any capacity how you live outwardly, you stop fooling yourself. It could be that you have never become a new creation inwardly. You see, your works do matter to God. Your works compose your meal offering, the labor of your life. And so let me ask you, have you become a meal offering? You'll never be a meal offering if you don't first become a burnt offering. Until you have died for Him, you cannot begin to really live for Him. And in living for Him is where you be start to bear fruit for Him. You're no longer barren as a Christian. Uh, you begin bearing the fruit of a Christian. The fruit that remains is the eternal souls of men and women that you have touched, that your life in some way is transformed. Uh, but if you want that fruit, you've got to sow some seed. In other words, there's the labor. There's the law of reaping and harvesting. Remember what Jesus said, uh, lift up your eyes. The fields are white unto harvest, right? He wants to use your life to reap and redeem other people's lives. Uh, but the way a life is transformed is through a transformed life. Let God change your life, and he'll use your life to change other lives. Now, here's the reality, though. He's ordained that we should bear fruit. He wants us to have a fruitful life, and that's the grain offering. Uh, this Hebrew worshiper could not bring a grain offering or a meal offering if they did not have a fruitful season in their fields. So they would literally reap of their fields, and from those fields of grain, they would bring a grain offering, a voluntary offering that went beyond that mandatory tithe of their grain. This was a voluntary offering. Now remember what this meant for them. This was their family's livelihood. This was how they were going to feed their family. So it took great faith to bring a grain offering to the tabernacle in these days because it was literally taking food off their baby's table, right? 
They were trusting God for their provision in return. I want you to see the, the, the implications here. You can see why this offering meant so much to God. And I want you to see the application for you and I. There's no way they could bring a grain offering if they first didn't sow their seed. And there is no way that you can become a grain offering. You cannot live a fruitful life. And Jesus said these words in John 15, 16. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. He wants you to live a fruitful life. And the, the fruit he has in view there, I'm convinced, are the souls of men and the souls of women that are transformed forever through the testimony of your life. In some capacity, your ministry, lives you have touched that have been transformed for eternity. That's the fruit that you have the potential to bear. But here's the point. Just like that Old Testament Hebrew, you cannot... Bring a harvest if you're not sowing any seed. And here's the reality. Most Christians today will sit in church or sit in a Bible study and wonder why their life is barren and their fields have no fruit. And the reason why is when you come to church or you sit here in a Bible study, you're just sitting in the combine. You're just sitting on the tractor. You're not sowing any seed. That's not what happens here. It's out there that you sow seed. So let me ask you, who have you talked to recently about the gospel? Who have you had a spiritual conversation with? How are you sowing seeds where you work? Because that's the harvest field. How are you sowing seeds in your neighborhood, uh, in the block that you live? How are you sowing seeds with those lost family members that are far from God? You see, that's what's, that's what's going on here. As you become a meal offering, all of a sudden your life begins to multiply with fruit. And this is the progression. It's not an accident. This is what Jesus said in John 12, 24. Listen to what he said. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, he was speaking of himself, his own life. He's saying, look, unless I die, my life will abide alone. But if I die, just like a seed, say a, a kernel of corn is sowed by the farmer in the springtime, it dies but when it's resurrected, it comes back alive. And what happens? It's multiplied hundreds and hundreds of times. One ear of corn with hundreds of kernels of corn came from one seed. That's what he was saying about his own life. And what is true of Jesus is true for you. You've got one seed, one grain of wheat. If you die, there's the burnt offering. It's resurrected alive, multiplied there's your meal offering. And that's why you have the progression of the burnt offering and now the meal offering, the grain offering. But we're like the farmer who expects a harvest, many of us, and we're not willing to sow any seed. Uh, as a church, we've been sowing seed in our city for years and years and years with every single carnival, every single year, and every polar party year after year, and every Love KC, and every day we go out to serve uh, our city with the various service projects uh, every year that we come with. It, every time we go to downtown days and we take out the trash for our city, every single time somebody shows up at somebody's house after they have been a guest in our church house with a little gift just to say, man, we're glad you were here. Do you understand? Every time we're tilling the soil of our city and we're scattering seed, and that is why God is bringing a harvest because of years of tilling the soil, years of scattering the seed. Guys, what is true of a church body is true of your life personally. 
I don't want to live a barren life. I want to live a fruitful life. I want one day to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, but I don't want to stand alone. I want my life to have been multiplied over and over and over again as a grain offering before the living God. Somebody says, well, I just have a private faith. I hear that often, I know. Listen, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that anyone has a private faith. I realize we all have different personalities. I get that. That's not what I'm talking about. We all have a different way of being a witness. We don't all have to do it the same way. Listen, you can do things I can't do. You have gifts I don't have. We, we don't all have to have the same things. It wouldn't be a body if we were all the same. But, but there's no sense of having a private faith as if I'm exempt from sharing because I'm more of an introvert. And uh, Phil, you're more of an extrovert. I uh, hear people say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Of course you don't have the gift of evangelism. Nowhere in the New Testament is it ever listed among the spiritual gifts. It's not a gift that some have and some don't. Some might naturally have a better talent for it, but it's not a spiritual gift. Uh, we know from Ephesians 4, it was an office of the first church. We know the apostle Paul said to Timothy, his son in the faith, do the work of an evangelist, but nowhere is it said that it's a spiritual gift. You see, it's a command for all of us in some way to be a grain offering before God, multiplying that seed sown in our life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that promised seed of Genesis 3.15, sowing that same seed in the life of many, many, many others. Now, how do we do this? We don't have to do this alone. We don't have to do this with no power. We have a fuel for the fire. We have a fuel. We have the source. Look at what it says here. How are they to present the grain offering? Look at what it says here. It says, he shall take from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense. Now, some of you ought to be way ahead of where I'm going because oil in Scripture is a type. It is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We labor in the power of God's Holy Spirit. This is how we become that meal offering as a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the promise of Acts 1 and verse 8? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You shall be witnesses of me in your community, in your city, in your country and not just locally, even globally. How do we do it? We've got the oil of God's Holy Spirit. The oil of God has permeated our life. And I will promise when you are filled with the oil of God, your lamp is going to be lit. You are going to shine bright and shine white uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. You will naturally light up the darkness of our world with your life when your lamp is lit and your fire is fueled with the oil of God's Spirit. How do you do that? Again, it goes back to the burnt offering. It's a matter of surrender. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In the same way Paul was teaching, wine can control you when you get too much of it. The Spirit of God begins to control you. Uh, and here's the deal. He already lives in you. Romans 8 and verse 9. He that has not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. You got the Spirit of God when you got the Son of God. The question is, does the Spirit of God get you? You don't need to get more of the Spirit. You need to let the Spirit get more of you. And when you do, all of a sudden, the oil of God 
begins to fuel you, you will naturally begin lighting up wherever you go for God. You naturally will begin being that meal offering for God. When you give everything to God, He will always give you some back. If you look at the text here, check this out. The Levites, unlike the others, were not allowed to plant. They were not allowed to have flocks or crops. You know why? Because this was their full-time job. So they were allowed to eat of this offering. And uh, while they would offer some of it before the Lord, God said, I'm giving you back a portion of it. Uh, And uh, it says, and the remainder of it, verse 16, Aaron and his son shall eat with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in the holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, they shall eat it. This, in essence, guys, it was their breakfast, just to put it in practical historical terms. See, God's going to let you eat it. He's not going to take everything, even though you're willing to give everything. He's not going to take everything. He's going to give you enough. He's going to give you something. And often, He's going to give you back more than you ever could have fathomed, you ever could have imagined. Listen, our lives should be free of sin. This was a meal offering of unleavened flour. Did you see that? Several times. It's an offering of unleavened flour. Leaven, as you know, is a picture of sin. You cannot be a meal offering before God while you're living in sin over and over again, habitually rolling in it, reveling in it. No, 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 wait. We need to get the leaven out of our life. And as you become a burnt offering, a living sacrifice, I'm telling you what naturally happens is the leaven begins to leave. You naturally Leviticus 6.18, uh, everyone who touches them must be holy. You naturally become increasingly like God who is holy. First uh, Peter 1.16, be you holy for I am holy, saith the Lord. Listen, as a grain offering of God, it's about laboring for Him and doing it as an unleavened sacrifice. Unleavened sacrifice life, a life without sin. Guys, I love you so much. Let's this week be the burnt offering. We will naturally become the grain offering. And we'll talk about the next offerings next week. God bless you. You guys stayed through the whole thing. I mean, I was wearing myself out back there. (laughs) That was a long one. But as you can see, there's just a lot there. I mean, there is a lot there. You can peel back layer after layer after layer and still not get to the bottom of it. So, um, got a little bit of time for Q&A discussion. Anybody? Anything? Uh, Question or comments? Yeah, Joel. Joel, go ahead and use the mic, would you please? Uh, Then he shall take off his, uh, his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Would you say that is replicated in, in Psalms 103, separating our sins as far as the east is from the west? I sure do. And remember what else Paul said? I think there's something else going on here. Uh, in Ephesians where he says to take off the old man and put on the new man. Uh, so we're to take off our old clothes, speaking of the flesh, and put on our new garments, our priestly garments. I think maybe in some way that's a shadow of, of what Paul would talk about later then to the Ephesians.
Good question. Um, I've been a follower of Christ the majority of my life, but I'm still learning how to be a student of the Bible. Um, so I have a couple of questions. You've said before that a lot of people try to take the supernatural out of a supernatural book, such as the Bible. Um, so how do you discern in Scripture when something is seemingly insignificant, such as a detail like um, where to offer up the sacrifice, the burnt offering from the herd versus the flock versus the birds, um, as those are given in different locations, how do you discern between that being just simply a procedural thing for the Jews versus a typological thing for us mm -hmm. as Christians? Yeah, great question. So, you know, the way I look at it is this. There is no wasted space in the Bible. There's not one wasted word in the Bible. In fact, we teach a principle, guys, if you go through Discipleship 2, uh, 21 laws of Bible study or 21 keys of Bible study. And I'm thankful you've said you're a student of the Bible. We're all students, lifelong students of the Bible. I mean, you never quit being a student of the Bible. You've never learned everything there is to know about the Bible. Uh, I guarantee Leviticus is a book. As much as I learned about it, there is so much more I don't know about it. Uh, and so you have to look at yourself as a student, lifelong student of the Bible. Uh, one of the laws of Bible study we teach, uh, to learn how to study the Bible. Guys, part of the problem in modern church life, people don't know how to study the Bible. Uh, we're, we're taught to read the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with reading the Bible. You should read the Bible. Be on a reading plan. But understand the Bible's not merely meant to be read. It's meant to be studied. Uh, there's no way you can get everything from it by just passing over it, passing through it. And so it really is about learning how to study the Bible. One of the laws of study we teach is the law of, um, uh, the, the, law of the principle of measured words, okay? And the principle of measured words says this, that every word is measured. And so um, God isn't random in anything he does. He's very meticulous, very precise in the language he uses. That's guy, well, once again, it's called the, the word of God, right? This isn't just the thoughts of God, it's the Word of God. And so uh, that's why I'm really particular about a word-for-word -word translation as opposed to many modern translations that are basically paraphrases. No matter how good a paraphrase is, it's just a paraphrase. It gets the thought across. But for the kind of Bible study we do, especially on Sunday afternoons, I want to know the specific words that God used. And so how do we know then, and I'm, I appreciate you sharing that and saying that, because I think the modern tendency of even modern Christians who really are Bible believers, it is to take the supernatural out of the Bible and uh, look at Scripture through the naturalistic lens. And I think um, the key thing here is we don't read anything back into Scripture that's not already there. So you've heard me say over and over again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And the way you learn what the shadows are, as opposed to just maybe a, your personal opinion or maybe reading something back into it, is uh, the Bible always, as you compare Scripture to Scripture, the best commentary on the Bible being the Bible, uh, the symbols begin to define themselves. God uh, interprets it for us. And so none of us can say that, uh, well, this is my interpretation, uh, because the only one who gets to interpret it for us is the one who wrote it. If uh, you author a letter to somebody and there's a little bit, maybe something that's unclear in what you've written, 
who's the obvious person to go to to find out what they meant? Yeah, the author of it, right? And so uh, God will always interpret it for us. And so how do we know what the shadows are, the symbols, the types? Um, it's always there somewhere. And so an obvious example would be this. Uh, Ephesians 6.17, take you therefore the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the sword is always a shadow of what? The Word of God. The sword is always a picture of the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living in power, sharper than any two-edged there it is. And so God is always consistent in all that he does. He'll never say, well, the sword is a picture of the word of God in one place uh, and then interpret it somewhere else as your mother-in-law, right? He's not, he's not going to be random. That'd be like somebody um, publishing a dictionary and changing the meaning of the words and not telling anybody ahead of time. So God always defines it in the same way. Oil, the type of the Holy Spirit, leaven. Uh, Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, those are obvious shadows, right? And so I don't get to read my interpretation back into it. Well, leaven, what could that be? Hmm, wait a minute. I mean, Jesus used it very specifically, speaking of false doctrine, the false doctrine of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the sin of the Pharisees. And so I think that's a key thing here, guys, is um, to remember the Bible is self-defining, it's self-interpreting. It's also very pragmatic, it's very practical. And so what you see in some of these offerings, they all are a picture of Christ, they're all a symbol, a shadow of Jesus, he would embody them all, but he's also very pragmatic, very practical. And so you see different types of offerings for the burnt offering and so on based on the ability of the one who is doing the offering. Uh, it's just a pragmatic uh, application of that offering. One who was wealthy and had herds, as in cattle, could bring a young bull. Those who were wealthy but not that wealthy that had flocks could bring a lamb. And those who were not wealthy at all, basically those who were just on a subsistence living, poverty, they could bring a turtle dove. And so um, I think sometimes it's just a matter of historical, practical application, and there's not like a symbol necessarily that I'm trying to apply, you know, a bull from a, a lamb necessarily. It's all a symbol of Christ. It's all a picture of Christ. And God in many places in the book of Leviticus is just the historical context of the time uh, is sometimes what we see happening there as well. Great question. Somebody else, somebody, yeah. Thank you. So I was wondering, the altar that we're talking about today where it burns 365, was that like in the tabernacle, in the outer, inner tabernacle area? Okay, so how did they travel with that for 40 years, like carrying around this burning fire? They sure did. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly <laughs> what they did. And then do you know how big the wilderness was? Like, and how close of a proximity it was. Okay, so how big the wilderness was, as in the area they wandered in? Yes, and how close it was in proximity to the promised land. Huge. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you go the Holy Land tour with us, we actually go to Jordan first. One of the reasons we go to Jordan was we go to Petra. 
And one of the bonuses of going to Petra, which is in southern Jordan, is you'll see a lot of the route that Moses led them in from Mount Sinai uh, in Arabia. He led them up then through the desert. Uh, and we actually make a stop in the Valley of Moses. It's known to this day, the Wadi Moji, where they came through in this valley on their way then to Kadesh Barnea, where Moses sent those 12 spies in. And we're talking... Um, you know, and with the wilderness wandering for 38 years, you know, they made that, that um, very faithful decision not to go over and cross over at Kadesh Barnea, which is in the southern Canaan, kind of right on the boundary of what was the promised land on the south side. And Kadesh Barnea would then become kind of like uh, the headquarters for those 38 years they wandered. They would stay there a lot. They were there a lot. So they weren't like mobile and wandering every day. Well, let's pick up and move on. You know, it wasn't like that kind of thing where every day for 38 years you're just wandering to the next spot and setting up camp and doing it again the next day. And uh, basically, uh, they would pretty much follow, in all probability, they would follow the water and they would follow the grass. Remember, they had flocks, they had um, uh, sheep, and so... Even today, if you go, you'll see what amounts to a, a, a Bedouin type of um, culture. And the Bedouin were shepherds and are shepherds, and they lived in tents, and they still live in tents, and they're very mobile, but they will basically establish an area and stay there maybe for several months at a time until either the water dries up or the grass is gone, and then they pick up and they move on to where they uh, find the water and the grass again. And so that probably really captures what they did for 38 years. They spent a lot of time at Kadesh Barnea because it was basically a desert oasis. It was a well-watered area in an otherwise very, very arid part of the world. And so um, while they were mobile, they weren't picking up and moving on every day. They might have stayed in one place three or four months at a time. And uh, depending on the time of year then, they'd move up and uh, move uh, up to higher elevation. And then at times they'd be moving down to lower elevations. But it's largely, when you think of the wilderness, don't think of like the Rocky Mountain National Forest. I mean, we're talking about desert. And this is what made the promised land so promising. Because it's amazing in this relatively small area of geography uh, how you go from very rocky sandy uh, desert where, you know, it seems like nothing can live and nothing can grow. And all of a sudden, you come to the Jezreel Valley, it's just beauty, be fertility. Um, and uh, so you can begin to see then the historical context. But we're talking probably in the whole wilderness wandering of 38 years, probably something like 200 square miles that they would, have, they would have covered if you look at the, the route that Moses took them. Very large campsite. Gail? Pa Pastor Phil, can, yeah, you, okay. can you expand further a little bit on where it says where he is, if he has sinned and he has realized his guilt? Can you expand yeah. a little bit further on that? Sure. Yeah, I think that's really significant. And Chad... He did a pretty good job, I thought, emphasizing this, highlighting this morning. But it's definitely a mention, I think, worth uh, a mention again. Uh, what verse you got specifically? Uh, 6, verse 3. 
Uh, chapter 6, verse 3? 6, verse 3 and 4. 4 is where, where Okay. So chapter 6 and verse 3. Or if he has found what was lost, let's see. Or if he has found what is lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what is stolen. Is that what you're talking about? Wrong verse? No, it's, yeah, well, you're in three, but the next verse is if he has sinned and has realized his guilt okay. and will restore Then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what has delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs. I'm not seeing it. Am I still not reading it? What, are you at NASB? Or are you oh, at I'm in the New King James Version. NKJV? Maybe it's just my ESV. Okay. Leviticus... What's, what, what verse are you in? Of chapter 6, verse, verse 4. And it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen. We're in the same verse? Okay. So, um, let me take the same concept, same verse here. Let's say, and let's go with, uh, um, I think, go, go to chapter 4 and verse 1. Because this is, this is the concept, and he repeats it several times here throughout these offerings. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bring guilt upon the people. And so... Uh, it looks like, look at, uh, ver- look at verse 2, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, and so this was for an unintentional or maybe an accidental, unwittingly he sins, out of ignorance, absolutely, there you go. Now you've got to remember, God has already given them the law. And so it's not like this could have been done, well, gee, I didn't know. God never said. No, God has said um, already what is um, right from wrong. He's given them the Ten Commandments. But the, uh, the implication, I think, would be more than, well, I just didn't know because they had no excuse not to know. Uh, how many of us have sinned and we knew it was a sin, but it took some time for repentance to set in? See, what's in view here is repentance. It's one thing to know something is wrong, but then there's this sense of repentance over what is wrong. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. What's the difference? Huh? Yeah. 
I'm sorry. And Chad talked about that today. I'm sorry. I mean, a lot of people are remorseful, but remorse that doesn't lead to repentance doesn't lead to change. So the implication here, guys, is, um, is that this is a repentant sinner. Now all of a sudden, they have knowledge of their sin. And um, as, he, as, you know, as Chad was talking this morning, all of a sudden he realized his stank. Remember that part of the sermon? Uh, it's one thing we all know, you know, well, I'm not a perfect person. I'm not perfect. God knows I'm not perfect. Let me ask you, is that the attitude of one who's repentant? Uh-uh. That's the attitude of self-justification. I'm only human, right? Self-justification. Um, you know, God knows I'm not, hey, I'm not a perfect person. What do you expect from me? I'm not perfect. See, self-rationalization uh, as opposed to repentance. So this person now, um, when it says unintentionally, no, no, they knew it was wrong, but it's one thing to know the difference between right and wrong and understand the difference between I have sinned against a holy God. And God would be absolutely justified to strike me from existence right now. Now they're doing this as an act of bringing a sin offering, as an act of repentance. Uh, and this would even correspond, I think, to you know, James chapter 2, which I mentioned up there. That faith without works is dead. Uh, it's not that bringing this sacrifice is what forgave them. They were forgiven of their sin the same way we were. For by grace are you saved through faith. The Old Testament saints were saved, to use our New Testament term, based on nothing more than God's grace through their faith. But understand, true saving faith always leads to what? Repentance. And the fruit of repentance is obedience. I've known a lot of people, guys, caught in sin who cried bucket loads of tears. Didn't change a thing. They were sorry for the consequence of the sin. They're sorry people they love got hurt. Uh, they're remorseful. They feel guilty, but understand, being guilty isn't repentance either. The fruit of repentance is never just merely crying bucket loads of tears and saying I'm sorry a thousand times. No, the fruit of repentance is always obedience. And so now this repentant sinner, now they have an understanding of their sin. No longer is it unwitting. No longer is it ignorance. And now as an act of obedience, as the fruit of repentance, they're bringing now this bull, this lamb, um, before the Lord. So I think that's, that's kind of what you're getting at, right? Yeah. And you see that phrase repeated several different places throughout here. Yeah, somebody else. Gail. Okay, so I'm kind of, I think my question is a system question. Because there's just, we have the Day of Atonement, we have the scapegoats, we have the sacrifices, we have thousands of people. We have them putting on clothes, taking off clothes, you know, blood everywhere. So it's like, is this an in, individual thing? Is it a corporate thing? I mean, how can they be, I mean, the smells, you know. So can just, you imagine? No, no. So yes. Like, I tried to look, you know, look it up and say, is there a calendar? Like they did these, 
um, certain seasons, and of course the Day of Atonement, it's specified. Yeah. But, you know, it, it did say that they didn't have to bring um, sin offerings, like every time you sin, you got to show up with a sin offering. But it didn't really say, like, the schedule. And, okay. You know, like so the Jews, of course, had a calendar. And I'm going to do, coming back the week after Easter, I'm going to do the Day of Atonement on Sunday morning. And then the next week, I'm going to do the seven feasts outlined in Leviticus, which are basically an outline of the entire prophetic timeline God has for humans, for the sons of Adam. So that's going to finish up what we do on Sunday morning. The rest we're going to do at the well. Just kind of a snapshot, kind of the highlight reel of the book of Leviticus. So um, they did have a schedule, the Day of Atonement, for example, Passover, for example. But basically, historically, especially as the Jews grew in number, the Hebrews grew in numbers, there's a reason why the Levites had no land grant. They were not going to be farmers. They were not going to work the land. Guess what they were going to do? 24-7. You had one high priest, and as the generations went by, you would have had hundreds of priests serving in the temple later after the tabernacle under the high priest, and they would have been making offerings consistently 24-7, 365, day and night. Hebrews, even coming from Galilee to the north, 70 miles to the north, coming to the temple on a regular basis uh, to make these sacrifices. Jesus was crucified on Passover, not so coincidentally. And as our Passover lamb was bleeding and dying, not so coincidentally, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs, Passover lambs, had been and were being sacrificed in the temple. Bloody, yes. The blood from the temple would have flowed literally into the Kidron Valley. And the side of the Kidron Valley, probably as the blood flowed out of the temple, would have been drenched red with the blood of thousands of Passover lambs as Jesus hung our Passover lamb on the cross. Yes, it was bloody, it was gory, it was ugly, but all of that was meant to be a picture of that one final sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And so just historically speaking, you're right, Gail, um, it would have been at times um, lines of people. Remember Jesus as he um, cleansed the temple and he turned over the tables? These were people, had to drive, they traveled long ways to get to the temple. And if they had flocks... Uh, it was one thing, you know, to carry our, you know, my luggage and I'm, you know, flying to Peru soon for another global serve team trip and I've learned to travel light. You know, I don't check any luggage anymore, anywhere. It's one thing to throw your backpack, you know, on, but imagine throwing your lamb over your shoulder and heading for Jerusalem from 70 miles away. And so what they would do instead of carrying their lamb with them on the way there is they'd wait to get there and they would buy a sacrifice. And the money changers in the temple were literally selling these sacrificial animals. The goats, the lambs, the turtle doves, and of course they were ripping off the people in the process. They were turning into a den of thieves, as Jesus said. They'd made great commerce out of this. But the point was, thousands and thousands of people were there as religious Hebrews to make their sacrifices. 
Every day of the week, 365, 24-7, the fire was never to go out. You know why? Because there was constantly going to be another sacrifice. One sacrifice to be made, somebody else is putting another one on. That one is made, somebody else is putting another one on. 24-7, you can see why. There had to be a lot of priests. They worked in shifts. And it's uh, probably not unlike today. There are certain places I will not go. If I can absolutely avoid it, I am not going to register my vehicle. I am not going to the DMV on lunch hour. Because I know I'm going to have to stand in line for a long, long time, and I might come close to losing my Christianity, okay? So I'm just going to avoid certain places when I know there's going to be a long line. I think it had been something like that. Um, they'd have been doing it at night. People would have been coming in the all hours of night knowing, well, there won't be as many people there then. In all probability. Margie. After the resurrection, how, how long was it before the Jews then quit the, quit the sacrifices, the ones that were believers of Jesus' resurrection? So the whole reason, she asked how long those Jewish followers of Jesus would have uh, continued the sacrifices or how long it would have taken them to end the sacrifices. The entire reason the book of Hebrews is written. That New Testament writer, I believe probably Apostle Paul, though it never says, is writing to these first century Jewish Christians. Remember, Jews in the first century following Jesus, they never thought one time about no longer being a Jew to follow Jesus. They never thought in terms of, I'm leaving my Judaism to become a Christian. We think in those terms as Gentiles never having been a Jew. But for them, following Jesus as the Jewish Messiah was just the natural progression of their Judaism. So they could not initially fathom not making sacrifices. And the entire reason that Hebrews is written is to illustrate to them, hey guys, there's a new covenant, a better covenant. You don't have to do this anymore. All of this was just a shadow, a, a symbol. He says it over and over again. The blood of bulls and goats could never save you. It could cover your sin. It couldn't cleanse your sin. And so many of them were struggling, trying to straddle the line between the old covenant and new covenant. And Hebrews is written to those early Christian followers of Jesus who were also Jews, trying to illustrate to them, hey guys, it's not both and. The old covenant is forever obsolete. You no longer have to bring a sacrifice of any kind again because the final sacrifice has been made for all men and all women. He had to tell them that. Had to tell that's what Hebrews is written for, which is why uh, over and over again, Hebrews quotes the book of Leviticus, because these first century Jewish followers of Jesus are still trying to, to follow Jesus while practicing the Levitical law. Yeah. Trina. Well, the ones who didn't believe he was the Messiah continued the sacrificial system until... The Romans came and tore down the temple in 70 AD, and that's when the sacrifices ceased. And they have not practiced the Levitical system of worship since 70 AD, which is why you were there at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. Orthodox Jews are praying that one day the Messiah comes and allows them to rebuild their temple so they can go back again to worship 
And the only way a Jew can worship is if they have the place, the temple, so they can make the sacrifices. And they have not been able to since 70 AD. Okay, Sophie, got one more time for one more and then we got to go. They were not practicing. There's no, so Sophie asked if you couldn't hear, the entire 400 years, the Hebrews were in bondage in Egypt. Were they practicing this Levitical system of worship? Uh, the answer is no. It had not yet been delivered. It wouldn't be delivered until Moses led them out of bondage in Egypt. That doesn't mean they didn't have a knowledge of the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it would have been nothing more than oral tradition. There was not yet any written revelation. Uh, and so there was certainly a knowledge of Yahweh as opposed to the pagan gods of the Egyptians. Many of them would have worshipped according to what they knew. Uh, their father Abraham, it would have been known through oral tradition, made sacrifices of his own. So it's possible they practiced a burnt offering of sorts even then. We don't know, though. There's no historical record um, in oral tradition or written tradition that would tell us we can just kind of surmise how they would have worshipped for those 400 years. It would have been oral tradition. They would have had a knowledge of the true and living God. Um, and there probably was some understanding of bringing the sacrifice before God. But uh, you got to remember how quickly, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, stayed a little too long, how quickly they fell back into idolatry and worshiped the golden calf. The implication being, many of them, if not most of them, were worshiping in idolatry when Moses delivered them out of Egypt. All right, guys, we're out of time. We've got a um, short business meeting coming up at 6 if you want to stay, if you don't, I won't be offended. Quarterly business meeting and update. We'll be back here next. No, we will not. Do not come next week. Do not come next week. Easter weekend. Bring somebody with you, but don't bring them here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a chance to be together and worship together, and study together, grow together. God, would you bless everyone here with a blessed week from above. Lord, help us to live on mission, to be filled with your spirit, to offer you this week a grain offering of our life by laying down our life as a burnt offering to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.